A listener's note. This episode includes graphic sexual details and may be triggering for some. Dramatic reenactments are based on public police records, official transcripts, and individuals with direct knowledge of the events as they occurred. Please take care while listening. The People versus Robichaux and Riley is an ongoing case. At the time of this episode's original air date, neither of the defendants had been convicted of any crimes. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is OC Swingers, Chapter 2, Sunday Funday. She slept for years on a bench in a park. She made some passes at man in the dark. They began running alone through the night. When she began loving, they put up no fight. On April 12th, 2016, six months before Grant and Sarissa's elderly neighbor heard screams in the alleyway, a 30-year-old woman reported an assault to the Newport Beach Police Department. She told officers that she met Dr. Grant Robichaux a week before at China Palace, a popular restaurant in Newport. They exchanged numbers, and a few days later, she received a text from Grant inviting her to join him on a Sunday Funday cruise around the harbor. The party began at the docks outside the cannery, an upscale seafood restaurant, around 4 p.m. The woman joined Grant, Sarissa, and some of their friends on a joyride to Woody's, a laid-back waterside bar located about a half-mile down the harbor. It's unclear whether she knew Grant would be bringing along his girlfriend, but a photo from that day shows the petite brunette smiling with Sarissa and three other young women on the back of the boat. The woman is wearing a black tank top and blue jeans with exaggerated rips down the front. Directly next to her, Sarissa playfully pulls her lips into a kissy face. Sunday brunch at Woody's is known for two things, getting rowdy and bottomless champagne, which waiters serve directly to hard-partying boats parked in the wharf. One of the first things that pops up on YouTube when you search for Woody's Wharf is a video titled Fight at Woody's Wharf, Newport Beach. The clip is a 30-second melee of about a dozen people brawling aboard a white motorboat named Off the Hook 2. It is chaos. A bystander incessantly screams, Courtney, Courtney, while another one goes, yep, is that guy punching that chick? Is that guy punching that chick? Hey, money doesn't buy class, assholes! I just had to see what Woody's was like for myself. So, on an excruciatingly hot day back in early October, I enlisted a friend to drive with me the 50 miles from Los Angeles to Newport Beach. We get to Woody's around 4 p.m. on a Friday, and I'm immediately struck by a sign next to the entrance that reads, absolutely no alcohol beyond this point, so start chugging. After ordering happy hour drinks outside, it's October, so still COVID, but there are plenty of people drinking inside. We begin chatting with a local, whom I'll call Beth. Beth has worked in Newport bars and restaurants for years. She sees it all, and she sees it through sober eyes. It takes me two tequila sodas to ask Beth whether the name Grant Robichaux rings a bell. It doesn't at first, but when I show her a picture, her eyes light up with recognition. She tells me that when this case first exploded on the news, no one at Woody's would talk about it. 
maybe because a former doorman there was accused of nearly identical crimes back in 2015, of raping and drugging six women, and ended up pleading guilty to a single sex felony charge. Beth says the doorman's ex still defends him any chance she can get. A few days later, I call Beth for more context. Her voice has been changed at her request. How would you describe the Newport party scene? It's just crazy. It gets out of control by the end of the night. I used to work Sundays. I don't work in that anymore. Sundays, at least at Woody, it's crazy because it's champagne brunch. We have a lot of boats that come in. It's just insanity, actually. So people serve the boats directly. They don't even come into the restaurant? Oh, yeah. We have cocktail servers that actually go out. and but We have security out there, though, too. And do the boats, like, interact with each other, like the people on the boats? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. We make sure to check everyone's IDs because, you know, it's a big thing in Newport about, um, like, ABC will come out and check to make sure everyone is of age and stuff like that, so... Beth tells me she's glad she doesn't work Sundays anymore. They're just too wild. Dudes would roll up with boats full of women so young that reporters began sniffing around for a story. They started staffing the docks with security just to keep everyone in check. This Sunday fun day back in 2016 was no exception. The drinks at Woody's were absolutely flowing. The woman later told Newport Beach police officer Paul Saris that she had about four alcoholic beverages, beer and champagne, and began to feel extremely intoxicated. Here's what happened, according to the woman's official police interview. These are her words, but not her voice. It says here that you're four foot nine and a hundred pounds. Is that correct? Uh, yes, around there. So four drinks is a lot for you, isn't it? I know how I usually feel after four drinks. This was different. It felt like I had 10 drinks. I could barely walk. At one point, she said, she watched Sarissa pour clear liquid from a contact lens case into a bottle cap and slurp the contents. I thought that was weird. Like, who drinks contact solution? The boat returned to the cannery, and the woman got off and boarded a golf cart with Grant and Sarissa to continue to party at Grant's apartment. Grant and his sister didn't move into the cushy duplex on 44th until June of that year. According to someone who was there that day and remembers the woman leaving with Grant and Sarissa, it wasn't unusual for the couple to bring new friends home. She told me, quote, Usually if Grant and Sarissa left with a girl, there was chemistry or something going on. They played the flirting game and made it very obvious what their MO was. They were very open with it and usually led with it, actually. You'll hear this refrain again and again from friends and lawyers that everyone knew exactly what Grant and Sarissa were into and that women routinely sought out the booze, the drugs, the group sex. They were, quote, looking for the party. Okay, so what happens when you get back to the apartment? I remember um, lying down on the stairs near the fireplace to keep warm. I was so, so tired. And then they, like, pick me up and carry me to an upstairs bedroom. Grant and Sarissa pick you up and put you on the bed. Yes, and... I'm lying there. On your back? On my stomach. Okay. And then what happens? So then Sarissa puts her palm out flat in front of me like this. Uh, There's a line of white powder and a small orange pill and then puts her hand out again like, now you go. And the powder is cocaine. 
see, I don't know, because I immediately felt so tired. Um, usually Coke wakes me up, right? But I, I could barely keep my eyes open. I felt awful. It was so intense, but then I was also kind of relaxed. My body was relaxed. It's so hard to describe because the memories don't exactly fit. It's n not all there, you know? All of a sudden, I notice that Sarissa is completely naked. She starts tugging off my shirt while at the same time, Grant is pulling down my jeans. I try to tell him to stop. I say something stupid like, I'm on my period. Um, and Sarissa snaps at me like, don't lie. I know you're not on your period. And he flips me over. Or Robichaux flips you over? Yeah. So, so now I'm on my back and he, Grant, uh, he pulls me by my ankles toward him. He's also naked? Yes. The woman said Grant began to have unprotected sex with her while Sarissa filmed the encounter on an iPhone with a light blue case. At one point, Grant and Sarissa referenced another woman who got upset when they filmed her, so Sarissa put the phone away. Grant went back and forth, having sex with her and then Sarissa and then her again. Then Sarissa performed oral sex on her while Grant had intercourse with Sarissa. The woman told Officer Saris that she felt paralyzed, like she couldn't move or make them stop. At one point, Grant attempted to have anal sex, but she pushed him away, and he didn't try again. After the sex is over, the woman said she thought Grant ejaculated, but she doesn't know where. He brought a key with gray powdery substance to her nose. At that point, I'm like, whatever. I, I just do it. It feels easier to just do it, and then I can't feel anything at all. At around midnight, the woman said, she was awoken by her phone ringing. Though this part changed in later interviews, she originally said that she immediately called an Uber to take her home to the apartment she shared with her boyfriend, Ryan. They had been together for a year and a half. The next day, Grant texted her something like, hey there, that was fun last night. We should do it again soon. The woman didn't text back. And the very next day, she reported the rape and followed a police car to Anaheim Memorial to undergo a sexual assault response team, or SART exam. A forensic nurse swabbed her cervix, her vagina, her vulva, cheek, anus, neck, breasts, and fingernails for DNA. She provided a urine sample and turned over her unwashed black tank top, H&M jeans, and Forever 21 bra, the outfit she wore that day on the boat. The nurse then asked, a routine question. Did you have sexual intercourse with anyone other than the assailants in the five days leading up to the incident? No, she answered. This would turn out to be a lie, and a crucial one. According to a report filed by Detective Gamble, the woman was not cooperative in the weeks following the forensic exam. On April 19th, nine days after the incident, she told Gamble that she felt overwhelmed and did not wish to move forward with the investigation. She did, however, agree to identify the suspects from a six-pack photograph lineup, even though she'd already shown an officer their Facebook pages. She failed to show up for the lineup and then said she'd be out of town for a week. Gamble tried to connect with the woman several more times. She said she left three voicemails on May 3rd, May 6th, and May 18th and sent a letter. On June 15th, the woman's toxicology report came back. At the time of the test, there were amphetamines, MDMA, or molly, and the presence of cocaine found in her system. Gamble called the woman, and once again she agreed to do the lineup. But she didn't show up. 
on June 17, 2016, Detective Gamble left one last message, saying that she'd be unable to continue with the investigation without the woman's assistance. She then closed the case, under leads exhausted. But in July, semen was detected in the vaginal sample, which was forwarded to the California Department of Justice DNA Laboratory to check for matches with profiles in their CODIS database. CODIS stands for Combined DNA Index System. Additional foreign DNA was also discovered on the woman's neck, right breast, left fingernails, and the vaginal sample. But there wasn't enough to try and find a proper match in the database. Nothing happened in the case after that. There was no case. It was closed. That is, until March 15th, 2017, nearly a year after that day at Woody's, when the Orange County database returned a positive match, a CODIS hit. The DNA sample found in her vagina belonged to Ryan, the woman's boyfriend. The following day, Newport Beach Police Detective Kristen Fox reached the woman by phone with the results. The woman admitted she'd had sex with Ryan the day of the incident and that they'd had an argument just before she left to meet Grant on the boat. She doesn't say why she omitted the information during the forensic exam, or at least it's not included in the report, but it's clear things had been rocky between the couple. Less than two months before the Woody's incident, the woman called 911 while riding as a passenger in Ryan's car. She was worried, she said, that he was too drunk to drive. At 9.05 p.m. on February 21st, 2016, an officer located Ryan aggressively pulling into a parking lot in Costa Mesa, just a few miles inland from Newport. He was arrested for driving under the influence. A few months later, after his license was suspended, he pled guilty in exchange for probation, first offender alcohol and victim impact counseling, and one other thing. Ryan agreed to have his DNA, fingerprints, and a photograph on file for perpetuity in the Orange County District Attorney's DNA database. This tangent about Ryan and his DUI may seem like a red herring, but it's not. To refresh your memory, here is the timeline of events. On February 21, Ryan gets arrested for driving under the influence after his girlfriend calls the cops. On April 3rd, this same woman meets Grant Robichaux at China Palace and exchanges numbers with him. On April 10, this woman parties with Grant and Sarissa at Woody's and goes home with them, according to both police reports and witnesses. On April 12th, the woman reports that she was raped and drugged by the couple and submits a rape kit. She later stops cooperating with police, and the case is closed. On July 22nd, the OC Crime Lab confirms there is sperm in the vaginal sample and forwards the finding to their DNA database to see if it matches a known offender, even though she's already identified the perpetrators. On October 2nd, Grant and Sarissa's neighbors call the cops after hearing screams coming from the alley. This case, too, is subsequently closed and filed under suspicious circumstances. On November 23rd, Ryan, the first woman's boyfriend, pleads guilty to driving under the influence and, as part of a plea deal, agrees to contribute his DNA to the Orange County District Attorney DNA database. This process can take a while, as they need to test the sample, generate a profile, and then upload it. On March 15th, more than a year after the DUI, the database confirms that the DNA found in the woman's vaginal sample belongs to Ryan the district attorney's office is alerted of the CODIS hit, as is customary. Eventually, 
An investigator named Jennifer Kearns is assigned to review all of the corresponding cases. My point is this. If the woman never called 911 on her boyfriend that night, the district attorney's office may never have learned the names Grant Robichaux and Sarissa Riley. Without the DUI incident, the DA's office never gets a CODIS hit. Without the CODIS hit, the two police incidents concerning Grant and Sarissa stay closed. Coincidence or conspiracy? It depends on whom you ask. I am Andrea Ross. I'm a law professor at UC Berkeley, where I teach criminal law and criminal procedure and evidence. And my specialty is forensic evidence, like DNA. In 2019, Andrea Roth authored a paper about the secretive nature of the Orange County DNA database titled Spit and Acquit, Prosecutors as Surveillance Entrepreneurs. She knows more than most about how DNA sequencing technology works. Orange County is, so far, the only prosecutor's office in the entire country that has its own DNA database. And it has the biggest DNA database that is not linked up to CODIS. It's sort of its own thing. It's their pet project, if you want to call it that. And I think at last count, it had over 170,000 people in it. I haven't even checked in in a year or so, so it could be higher. But it's a significant number of people who are in this database. So what's unique about it is, number one, it was created by a prosecutor's office. And number two, it's not authorized by a state statute or a federal statute. It's not one of these state or federal DNA databases that are filled with people who are required to give a DNA sample because of some crime that they've been convicted or arrested for. Instead, these folks are in this database because they have agreed to be in the database in exchange for having their misdemeanor offense dismissed or a more lenient plea offer. And so it's ostensibly consensual. And that's how it can get around constitutional scrutiny. Andrea thinks Ryan's CODIS hit is weird for a variety of reasons. I mean, normally the reason that you would run a DNA profile that you get from a crime scene or a rape kit through CODIS is that you don't have a suspect. It's like a stranger rape and the person then leaves and the victim doesn't have any clue who the rapist is or there's a homicide victim or a burglary scene or something and you get DNA and you have no suspect and so you run it through CODIS and lo and behold you get a match or whatever but I've just never heard of a case where you have a victim saying these are the two people who drugged and raped me and then somehow running the DNA sample through CODIS just to see if there's anybody else When I asked the Newport Beach Police Department why they ran the rape kit through CODIS in the first place, they say they are unable to respond, as this is not public information. But Andrea Roth says a giant DNA database full of nonviolent offenders is rife with ethical issues. I've actually heard hallway conversations between prosecutors and people who are not represented by lawyers. And the prosecutors tell them, look, You'd have your DNA in this database. So if you commit 
a crime later on, like a murder or whatever, then we would be able to see that it was you, which is true so far as it goes. That's basically the gist of what they tell them in the hallway. And so I think folks think, well, I'm not planning to commit a murder. So what's the big deal? I don't even think the prosecutors are trying to be misleading. I think it's that having your DNA in some under-regulated government database is something that maybe none of us really know the full implications of because technology is changing so rapidly. But there could be coincidental hits. Coincidental hits. As in, an emergency alarm could go off when it's not wholly warranted. Last episode, I mentioned that in addition to the amended charges filed on October 17th, 2018, Danielle Bajak, Jane Doe, number five of seven in the criminal case, filed a civil suit. She not only sued Grant and Sarissa, but also Grant's sister, Jennifer, and his brother-in-law, Bill, who shared the duplex and a homeowner's insurance policy with Grant. In a public filing submitted by Bajak, She said she suffered from severe mental and emotional distress, consisting of panic attacks and intrusive thoughts after being roofied and assaulted by Grant and Sarissa around Halloween 2016. Hers was the third allegation of rape or attempted rape by the couple that year. While Bajic's lawyer, Dan Gillian, wouldn't put a price tag on the case for me, it's been said that she was originally seeking $20 million in damages. The matter, which is still being settled, presented a unique opportunity for the defense. Grant's criminal attorney, Philip Cohen, was able to subpoena and interview several individuals involved in both cases to gather information that might be beneficial to his client. Criminal attorneys don't typically depose witnesses in correlating civil matters, but that's what happened here. Bajek's attorney, Dan Gillian, told City News Service that he was comfortable with Cohen leading the depositions because of his lack of experience. He said, quote, our case is about one thing, and his case is about another. So he doesn't know how to ask questions in a way that's useful. Philip Cohen could be described as a caricature of a bullish defense attorney. Think the dad from Clueless, but far more physically imposing. He is bald and broad-shouldered with a pronounced forehead and sunken, owlish eyes. He likes to dress up for court in tweed vests, pocket squares, and these thick-ass ties, which he only wears loosely knotted. He's a yeller. Before defending Robichaux and Riley, his most famous case was defending a co-founder of the frozen yogurt chain Pinkberry, who was found guilty of beating a homeless man with a tire iron. Philip Cohen doesn't just show up to court with a briefcase. He comes in guns blazing, looking for a fight. On August 7, 2019, Cohen deposed Detective Kristen Fox, a now-retired veteran of the Newport Beach Police Department, who was assigned to revisit the assault at Woody's after the CODIS hit in 2017. This is actual audio from that deposition. Around the one-hour mark, Cohen begins to ask about Jennifer Kearns, the DA's former lead investigator on the case. Do you remember how it came about that after Newport Beach PD closed these two investigations, and we'll get into more specifics about those investigations, but the two investigations that you worked on, after Newport Beach PD was closed them, How it came about that Investigator Kearns then started asking you or requesting from you information about those two cases. So as I recall it, she reached out to me, referenced the um, CODIS hit. Were you involved in the CODIS hit? Yes. Okay. 
So sometime after the CODIS hit, Investigator Kearns reaches out to you and ultimately requests reports from you of cases that you had previously closed. Yes. Was it unusual that an outside law enforcement investigator would request from you reports on cases that your office had thoroughly investigated and closed? Your word, unusual. I just, I don't know what her experience and background. I'm asking about your experience. But in my experience, yes. So you get assigned to follow up on this CODIS hit. Uh, We all seem to agree the CODIS hit had nothing to do with Robichaux or Riley, correct? Yes. And so to the extent that Robichaux and Riley were suspects of a crime back in April of 2016, this CODIS hit in March of 2017 does nothing to in any way strengthen a case against Robichaux or Riley, correct? True. In fact, it's fair to say that the CODIS hit actually calls into question even more so the credibility of Jane Doe 1. Yes. Next time on OC Swingers. I was just like, there's no way. So I went and looked at the picture. I was like, like, that's him. I was like, there's no way. There's no way he could have done this. It's like somebody framed him. He was cocky and arrogant, but not like in a hurtful way towards anybody. But I never took anything to heart with him. So he could come in and just unload. And whereas some people might take offense to it, I just, that was his personality. I got it. Hi, I'm Missy Giat, and I'm here to tell you why Grant Robichaux is who I'd recommend for any orthopedic problem. OC Swingers is an audio Chuck original, executive produced by Ashley Flowers, and created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. It was produced by Josh McLaughlin, editing and sound designed by David Flowers, with additional research and fact-checking by Barbara Keene. Special thanks to Michael Carey, Ann Dibel, and Anna Hendrick of Quest Investigates, and Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. The actors in this episode were Rebecca Robles and Louis Kornfeld. So, Chuck, do you approve?